This is probably the last letter that Paul wrote. He was in prison at the time that he wrote it. We know that Paul died somewhere, or was martyred, I should say, um, somewhere during the reign of Nero, which would put it from, um, from A.D. 64 to about A.D. 66. So these are things that Paul is communicating, the last known communication we have. And he was writing to Timothy, who he had a special relationship with. There were several people that followed Paul and were part of his company. And um, some even went to prison with him to take care of him. And then um, that's just the way things worked back then. If he was going to be taken care of, he had to provide or have somebody to do it because the the jailers weren't interested in feeding prisoners or anything like that. But Timothy had a special place in Paul's heart. He calls him his son in the faith. Paul was a spiritual father to Timothy. Timothy was apparently a young man. At the time that he writes this, he would have been the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And Paul is communicating things with Timothy personal things, certainly the things that he felt like were the most important for Timothy to know, for him to remind Timothy of prior to his death, his departure. And Paul, in this letter, begins to prophesy to Timothy, to speak by the Holy Ghost concerning things regarding the end of the age, the end of the church age. So he starts in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. He said, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Paul is inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell Timothy what's going to be at the end. Now there are some, there are some interesting uh, words and definitions in this passage of Scripture that Paul refers to. One is the word know. Where it says, this know also, it's an imperative command. It's, and and I'm, I'm approaching this from the standpoint that the Holy Ghost is inspiring Paul to say this or to write these things. So it's really the Holy Ghost speaking through the Apostle Paul. So here's the Holy Ghost saying, here's the thing that I want you to know. Know this of a certainty. Know this of a truth. Know these things. They shall absolutely come to pass. Well, then that, don't, that makes these scriptures imperative for us to know, too. He's not just saying, now, you can believe this or not. He's saying, know this. That in the last days, perilous times shall come. Some of these Greek words, of the, Greek, the meaning in the Greek that Paul is trying to convey really doesn't come through in the English languages, uh, at least as forcefully as it should. Maybe it comes through, but not, uh, not as forceful as uh, it seems that the Holy Ghost was prompting Paul to say it. The last days began on the day of Pentecost. In A.D. 33, Peter tells us it was 9 o'clock in the morning when the Holy Ghost was poured out. And Peter, in describing the event that was taking place, everybody heard these men, uh, the 120 in the upper room, now out in the streets, spilled out into the streets, speaking in tongues, and it was quite an event. It was quite a phenomenon. And Peter uses Joel's prophecy to identify what was happening. Here's the first example that we have of Peter or anybody other than Jesus speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost in the church age. And Peter said, this is what Joel prophesied, that in the last days, the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. So the day of Pentecost was the beginning of the last days. And those last days have continued now for 2,000 years. It's um, for anybody that, that scoffs at these things or kind of blows them off, one of the things you hear from people pretty often is, well, they've been talking about the last days for 2,000 years. Well, they're exactly right. It has been the last days for 2,000 years. But the word that Paul uses here for last is a, a word that doesn't just 
mean during that time period, that age of grace or that church age? It means the last of the last things. It's a word that's used in uh, a nautical context, and it means the last port. So if you're sailing, that's as far as you go because there's no port that goes further. It's as far as that can be reached. So when the Holy Ghost says in the last days, he's talking about the last of the last days, the very end time of the church age. Now, what ends the church age? Jesus coming back for the church. The rapture of the church. In the Greek, the word that's used concerning the end of of, uh, the church age or these things that we're talking about literally means the big event. Thank God there's a big event coming. And that big event is Jesus coming back for the church. Taking us with him, catching us up into the air and taking us with him. So where it says in the last days, it literally means the very end season of this time period that we're living in. Same time period they were living in. This period of time called the last days. And it means this. It means we will be inside or surrounded by the characteristics of this season that he's going to refer to. It's almost taking, it almost connotes or denotes the idea of being trapped inside. And we will be. We are. We're trapped inside until Jesus comes to get us. Now, that doesn't mean we have to succumb to everything that's going on. Doesn't mean that we're going to be defeated. But we will be surrounded, completely surrounded. And that's what Paul's saying. Completely surrounded by this unusual time, this unusual season. Now, folks, think about the context that Paul writes this in. He's in jail and going to be murdered, martyred for his faith. He's writing to Timothy, who some years later, at the age of 80, is killed, martyred too, for his stand against idolatry. In a time period where people were killed for their faith, Paul says things are going to get tough in the future. And I want you to notice what he says. You've read these passages of scripture before, I'm sure. So you know he talks about people. He talks about the behavior and the actions of people. Now folks, get this. He's saying the sign of the end, the Holy Ghost is telling us, the sign of the end of the end is people. Not blood moons. Not numerology. He says it's people. Now, I'm not saying that other stuff can't have value. I'm not saying that God's not in a lot of those other things. He may be. I don't know. But Paul said the thing you're going to be able to tell the last days by is people. People. So he says of this time, it will be perilous. These times or these seasons will be perilous. Now, the word perilous has a lot of different meanings. One of the, the um, uh, meanings that uh, uh, Strong's Concordance brings out is strength-reducing times. That's certainly true, but it goes even further. And remember, this is what we will be surrounded by. This word perilous is used only one other time in the Scripture. And it's fascinating to me, and unless you take the time to go through the, the tedious work of looking up every word that's used in these scriptures. These first four or five verses that the Holy Ghost prompts Paul to, to speak or that Paul prophesies about concerning the end of the end times, the end of the end of the church age, most of them are brand new words. You can't find it anywhere else in scripture. This word perilous, you can find one other time, one other place in Scripture. Let me read it to you from Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, it says, concerning Jesus, and when he was come to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, 
Mark says, uh, gatherings. There met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce. See that word fierce? That's the word perilous in 2 Timothy chapter 3. There met him two men possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. He's talking about a ferocity. He's talking about a condition that kept people from going into a certain place or a certain territory. He's talking about something that wounds. He's talking about something that brings great danger. So Paul says, know this. In these last days, the last of the last days, perilous times shall come. There will be a perilous or a fierce season. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce bakers, false accusers, Incontinent, fierce, despiser of those that are good. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. I want to go through some of these and and, uh, explain to you what they mean. Here where it says in verse 2, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. This is a word that does not exist. Lovers of of that word that's translated lovers of their own self. It's a word that doesn't exist in the Greek language. What I mean by that is it's a combination of two words that would never be used together. The first word is love. It's talking about romantic love, phileo. It's talking about the kind of love that you would have in a loving relationship with boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, and so forth. And the other word is self. This word love, this word phileo, is used in another place in Scripture not the combination of the word, but the, the single word love. Is, uh, phileo is used several times in, in, throughout Scripture. And it's used where um, Judas, speaking of the betrayal of Jesus, where Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. But when you put this other part, the other part of the word that's used here in Paul's prophecy, it means literally kissing yourself. For men shall be lovers of their own self. I joke sometimes that you could read this verse. Men shall be lovers of selfies. <laughs> That's not exactly true as far as the, the meaning of this word is concerned. But it does mean so infatuated, so obs- obsessed with self-love. That self is the only thing that matters. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. It's interesting to me that the end season, the last season of the church age, will be marked by people being into themselves so much that it is the outstanding characteristic. Of that season. So it says, Men shall be lovers of their own selves. The next word where it says covetous, it literally means loving gold, loving silver, loving possessions, loving money, currency. Now, why would they be lovers of currency or lovers of money? Because they love themselves. They're willing to do anything, to have anything, to go to any lengths. To have for themselves. Next word he uses is boasters. The word boasters is also an interesting word. It doesn't just mean to brag. It doesn't just mean talking about yourself. This word boasters carries with it the absence of moral absolutes. 
See, this word boasters means somebody that's willing to twist and turn the word or turn the truth or the facts of any situation to their own advantage to fit what they believe. Folks, Paul prophesied fake news. Paul prophesied that the last season, the end of the last day period, the end of the church age, would be marked by people that were willing to twist and say and promote anything as long as it fits what they believed. Paul also wrote to Timothy that in the last days men would have itching ears. They would heed to themselves teachers who would say what they wanted said, who would validate what they already believed rather than using the truth to establish your own beliefs. Now, Paul's talking about the world. He's not talking about the church. But you know as well as I do, the things that are in the world try to creep into the church too. So here where he talks about boasters, he's talking about people that have abandoned any moral absolutes to fit whatever they want to believe. Folks, that's exactly what's happening in the world around us. It's exactly what's happening every day in the period of time that we live. If you do away with moral absolutes, then there's nothing to keep you from having this gender fluidity, this sexual belief that you are who you claim to be no matter what, that science doesn't dictate who we are, that it's not just male or female, it's whatever somebody wants to be. And folks, look at how that has, ca- has, has caught on. I mean, 10 years ago, maybe not even that long ago, who would have imagined that somebody standing up and saying, I'm not a man, I'm a woman because I feel like it, would not be laughed out of the country? States are starting to issue driver's licenses that don't have a male or female, but they're gender neutral. Stupidity is taking root. Not because it can be proven, not because there's any evidence of anything, but because it's what people want to believe. The Holy Ghost told us about that. He told us what was coming. Next one I think is proud. Proud carries the the idea or the understanding That because of who they are, this, this season of time could easily be called the I am generation. Because it's all about who people say that they are. It's not about truth. It's not about facts. It's not about science. It's not about anything that has a solid foundation. It's about what somebody says they are. Well, then the, the connotation or the meaning of proud takes us to the place where people feel entitled. See, because they love themselves, because they love provision, because they want to provide for themselves, because they have no moral absolutes, I'm entitled to whatever I want. It's where some of the social justice stuff is coming from. It's certainly where some of the sexual idiocy comes from. And Paul prophesied it almost 2,000 years ago. Next thing it says is blasphemers. We think of blasphemy as blasphemy against God. But that's not what this word means. This word literally means a dissolution of language. Now, there's several ways you can look at that. 
First of all, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, 10 years ago, some of the stuff that, that is widely accepted would never have been even considered to be okay. The language has denigrated to such a degree in a couple of ways that it's, that it's just fascinating. If you didn't know Jesus, it'd be scary. The F word is commonplace. It's accepted. It's just the way people talk. So there's a denigration as far as vulgarness or vulgarity of the society around us. There's one of the, um, you know, these teenagers in the Parkland shooting thing and how the, the left has promoted certain ones of their, one in particular, one young guy, 17 or 18 years old, and there was an interview that, was, that took place. I don't know why they want to interview the guy. Folks, somebody 17 or 18 years old, no matter what, they don't have enough life experience to give an opinion. <clears throat> One of my main rules with our kids, I would always have at least uh, no more than two rules. And during the teenage years, one of the rules for my kids was keep your mouth shut. (laughs) Do what you're told and keep your mouth shut. And I wasn't trying to be unkind to them. And I know in some parenting circles, I would have been Hitler not letting those little darlings express themselves. (laughs) But when you don't have any life experience, you really don't have much to say. But this interview, you may remember what I'm talking about. This interview of this this 17-year-old kid was so vulgar. Every other word was the F word. And I thought to myself, here's this 17 or 18-year-old kid talking this way to an adult And he didn't bat an eye about it. And I thought to myself, you got to be kidding. I would never even have considered using that kind of language around another adult. Now you get around with other kids who are as stupid as you are, you know, some of those things happen, take place. But never before an adult. I was reminded when I was thinking about some of these things the other day, we took a vacation uh, to uh, Cabo San Lucas once when my kids were young. I say young, they were still teenagers, and my son was a teenager, I guess. But there was a guy down there that was drunk or on his way to being drunk and just using a lot of foul language really loud. And I almost got in a fight with this guy trying to shut him up from talking that way around my kids. Well, things have changed. Anybody that will even question somebody's vulgarity nowadays, they'd probably get arrested. But the other side of this blasphemers, the other meaning behind it, is where you change the meaning of words to fit what you want them to be. And folks, that's a common tool of the enemy. If you just redefine a word, then you can remove the resistance to whatever it is you want to do. The Bible says that'll be a sign of the end, the end of the end. The next one it mentions is disobedient to parents. This phrase is a little difficult because it has a couple of possible meanings too. It literally means a loss of parental control. But it's unclear, especially in light of the things that we see around us and what Beth was talking about with some of the stuff that's happening in the schools with this gender orientation stuff and the laws that are being passed. It's difficult to understand if it's just the individuals who are disobedient to their own parents or if the common general rule 
or general meaning of this phrase would be parents losing control of their children. Both seem to be at work. See, it could certainly mean disobedience to parents where a child no longer listens to his parent, whether he's young or whether he's old. The world is certainly going that way. You can trace a lot of the disobedience to parents that are taking place and that does take place in our country. You can trace a lot of it back to the TV show, the animated TV show, The Simpsons. Now, I've never watched the show, but when it produced, when a TV show, popular TV show, I guess, showed that kids could be smart alecks to their parents, they started being smart alecks to the parents. And there are tons of entertainment venues, movies, TV shows, and so forth that glorify the independence of children and portray parents as idiots. It's commonplace. Well, that could have something to do with this meaning. But it could also be that the parents lose control of their children, meaning the state takes over their control. Any law, like the ones that were mentioned earlier, that takes away my right to decide what my kids are going to hear, As far as I'm concerned, there might as well not even be a law. So disobedient to parents, loss of parental control is a sign of the last days. Then it says unthankful. You know how many times the Bible talks about being thankful or giving thanks? It's a commonplace thing in the scripture. It's a part of living a spirit-filled life. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks for all things under the Father. Giving thanks. Folks, when you lose your thankfulness, then there's automatically a decline. Because if you're not grateful, if you're not thankful for what you have, society as a whole begins to expect everything to be given to them. Again, there's this entitlement mindset or attitude. Where it says unthankful, It's a combination of a word that means the doing away with thankfulness. So it's not just talking about the heart of a certain individual. It's not talking about just personal behavior. It's talking about the society, mankind at large, that's no longer thankful for anything. Same thing's true with the next word where it says unholy. The word holy is referring to sacred things. It means to remove unholy, unholiness or the word unholy used here. Literally means, and again, this is the only place it's used in Scripture in the New Testament. Wouldn't be in the Old Testament because it was in Hebrew rather than Greek. But it means a removal of the sacred things of life. Now let me ask you, just a general normal news cycle Just a daily report from the news and what's going on around the world. Where is the sacredness for anything anymore? There's there's hardly anything outside of the church where there's any respect for anything sacred. Paul said that would be one of the things, the characteristics of the end of the end times. Without natural affection, this natural affection does not mean, as many people want it to mean, homosexuality. It's talking about without natural affection for your family. It's talking about further the breakdown of the family. Parental love toward children. Children loving their parents. It's a removal of all those things. 
truce breakers. You could apply this to any and every area. It's been translated things meaning litigiousness or how quick people are willing to file suit and to break truces, break uh, contracts and, and so forth. <clears throat> but there's some real strong evidence, even though it's a brand new word that Paul coined by the Holy Ghost, again, just as with others. It probably means, or it could mean. It's hard for me to say probably because I'm not the one the word was given to. But it could mean there's some pretty strong evidence that he's talking about divorce as being the covenant uh, that is broken, the betrayal. So without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers. This word false accusers is interesting because it literally means devils. So there's one thought, one school of thought with certain commentators that Paul in the middle of this prophecy, in the middle of this thing that the Holy Ghost has shown him so clearly and so precisely that Paul just is making an exclamation at the work of the devil in society. Or he could be just adding this to the prophecy and if so, he's identifying the number one characteristic of the devil. And that's to bring accusation. Now, folks, if that's true, that should become a part of our understanding about how the devil works. Again, he's talking about the world, not necessarily the church. But as I said before, anything that the devil is able to do in the world, he certainly wants to infiltrate and and contaminate the church with it too. And if that's the case, then the number one thing he talks about the devil is false accuser. How does that apply to us? Well, it applies to us in a couple of ways. One is we need to look at and understand how the devil works in the world. But we need to also understand that the devil is working overtime to falsely accuse us. Now, I'm not so concerned with what people outside of my realm of influence accuse me of. The area that I have the biggest trouble with is the devil accusing me to God and accusing me to myself. Those are the biggest works that the devil has in the Christian, in the believer, to hold us back. To make false accusations against us so that we feel unworthy to do whatever we have in our heart to do or whatever the word tells us. He knows how to do it. So false accusers, devils literally, is what Paul talks about next. Incontinent, fierce despisers of those that are good. Incontinence has to do with power. Or the absence of power. Now the word that's used here is the word that's always referred to in scripture. As, again it's a combination of words. One of the words is used. Of the words that is used is dunamis. Which always refers to the power of the Holy Ghost. It's talking about the creative power of God. It's talking about the sustaining power of God. So where it talks about incontinent, it's talking about a denial of the power of God. And notice what he attaches to that. He attaches fierce or savageness. This word fierce means to be savage. And he attaches to that despisers of those that are good. Again, he's talking about the world. He's talking about the attitude that the world takes not just to the church. The church only becomes a target because the church believes in moral absolutes. Some of these bills and some of the th measures that are going before the state legislature and, and that type of thing here in California are designed to remove the church's ability to insert moral absolutes, the teaching of moral absolutes. Because if anybody hears and believes that, 
the truth of moral absolutes, the fact that there are moral absolutes, the fact that mankind is made up of either men or women, and that homosexuality is a sin. Well, see, that kind of teaching, that kind of stand, if the church took it, will bring conviction and condemnation to other wrongdoing. So you got to get rid of that. Got to remove that. Folks, the world doesn't care two hoots about the church. They just don't want to feel bad about what they want to do. And the Bible will really mess up your plan for sin. So you have to silence the Bible. Despisers of those that are good. Traitors. Just means betrayers. Heady. There's a a word that um, is used earlier on. I, I, I missed it when we went by. But this word heady is similar to it. It means intellectual snootiness. It means, and again the word is not here, this is not the word heady, but it was used earlier up in the list. And it identifies the thinking or the idea that someone is so developed in their intellect that they're superior to everybody else well we see that as the justification for a lot of things that are done we see a lot of that in the news media we see a lot of that in government we see a lot of ideas or the promotion of the idea that you're too stupid to know what you need to do So somebody's got to decide that for you. Folks, in my personal opinion, I think we have the president that we have because somebody came along for the first time in a long time and treated people like they were intelligent enough to run their own lives. So this betrayal will be a sign of the end of the end. Heady. This carries with it the idea of impulsiveness, impulsive decisions without thinking about the consequences thereof. High-minded. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. I want you to notice this. High-minded. Paul talks about high-mindedness in other places. It's not this word. He doesn't use this same word. This is a new word too, I believe, if I remember correctly. But in other places, Paul talks about high-mindedness as being anything, any thought, any idea that exalts itself against the word or conflicts with what the word of God says. Those are the things that we're supposed to cast down, the imaginations and the beliefs and the reasonings that we're supposed to cast down that, are, that create and develop into strongholds in our lives. It's an interesting thing that, that wrong thinking. God puts so much trust and confidence in the, the creation called man that our wrong thoughts can stop the power of God. Now, I know there's a segment of the church that has the idea that since God is all-powerful and God is sovereign, which I, I think what they mean by sovereign means that just God can do whatever he wants to do, anytime he wants to do it. And so a lot of people have the idea that since God is all-powerful and God is sovereign, he can and will do whatever he wants to do, so whatever he's not doing means he doesn't want to do it. Whereas the Bible says you're the one that was given authority on the earth. You're the one that was given a choice in this life. To do what you will. You're the one that was given a choice. For life or death. Blessing or cursing. It's up to you and not God. 
So the high-mindedness would be obstacles to anything that the Bible says, anything or everything that the Bible says belongs to us or that we can have because we're in part of God's family or that we can have because we've been given authority and power over the devil. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. I want you to notice that. If he had just said lovers of pleasure, we would understand that that could mean anything. But where it says lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, it's comparing their relationship with God to their relationship with themselves. See, somebody that's not saved, if we identified them or described them as being lovers of pleasure... What's the big deal? That would be understandable. But if we said they loved pleasures more than they loved God, at what point did they devise or develop any love of God whatsoever? See the point? So this is one that he's talking about as a warning, I think, to the church. Because remember, the church is a part of that season of being surrounded by all of these evil things, of being trapped in the sense that it's everywhere around us. The Bible teaches us to live in such a way that we can be counted worthy to escape, and the escape is the rapture. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Having a form of godliness. This is not talking about the church. It's still talking about the world. Having a form of godliness means they develop some sort of moral virtue system to justify what they do. Again, this social justice stuff. Have you heard people saying we need to be on the right side of history concerning some of the junk that they're trying to do? What is that? It's them trying to attach a virtuous characteristic to what they want done. We're just looking out for the little guy. We're just trying to help the oppressed. We just want equality for all men and all women. Folks, most of the people that say that couldn't care less. They're just trying to take some kind of moral high ground to break all the rules so that nothing is wrong, nothing is illegal. Everything is acceptable. And that's what the devil wants things to be. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof From such, turn away. One translation says, turn away in horror. Now skip down with me to verse 13. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. I think some of the greatest laughter that takes place in the universe is the devil laughing at the people that he's using. I'm not sure who to attribute it to. It was either Stalin or Lenin, Russian presidents of many years ago that that both are responsible for the murders of tens of thousands of people. One of them coined the phrase useful idiots, talking about their own people who were supporting the leader, whichever one of the two it was, People that would support the leader because of what he said that he was doing things for. When in reality, he was just trying to control the people himself. And he called them useful idiots. I'm sure that the devil laughs his head off at the people that he has doing his work 
without any clue that they're doing things that are evil. Deceiving and being deceived. Evil men and seducers shall, worse, shall wax worse and worse, be deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them. Now, who, what does he mean by that? Is Paul talking about himself? Is he talking about remember the things that I taught you? Well, that may be a little part of it. But we need to recognize that just as John wrote to the church, we've got a witness from the Holy Ghost and we know all things. There's an anointing, an unction is the, uh, the two words that John uses in writing to the church. You have an unction, an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. It literally means that a person that's developing in themselves in the Word, they don't have to be spiritually mature. But someone that is developing themselves in the Word, they have a, 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 a right and wrong switch on the inside of them. They can know by the witness of the Holy Ghost, by the life of God within, they can know whether something is right or wrong. And it's a funny thing because so many times you got Christians, believers, people that have been saved for a long time, they'll get sucked into stuff that's wrong when brand new believers, brand new Christians knew all the time that they shouldn't. You know what's right and you know what's wrong. So continue, Timothy, in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice the thing that overcomes and subdues all of that other stuff that he talked about the last season. The conditions of mankind, the conditions of society, the conditions of the world that we live in at the end of the end. All of that is overcome by the wisdom of salvation. Now he's not talking about, he can't be talking about just being wise enough to get saved. Because you know as well as I do, that in itself doesn't bring wisdom for you to live your life. It's a good decision. Good choice to make. Supremely good choice to make. But that doesn't mean somebody is going to be wise in their life. But Paul says, that's the purpose for the word. To give you wisdom, to develop you in wisdom. So that you can overcome the world that you're living in. And from the things that he described... In many ways, the things that are taking place in our world, our present day, satisfies the criteria that he prophesies. Now, why do we want to do that? Why is the word so important? Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness. Where it says all uh, scriptures inspired by God, one meaning of that, he uses the word pneuma. It's, the word pneuma is translated spirit, it's translated breath. It means a variety of different things. And you need to understand, or I'm sure you do understand, that the Greeks didn't come up with a word. They didn't, when the Greek language was first originated, nobody was sitting around and saying, okay, now what are we going to use as a word to describe the Holy Ghost? And so Paul was left with using words that could fit or apply or that he did apply the power of God in the presence of the Holy Ghost with. But that was not their original meanings. Which means words that are used to describe God and his power and his character are always going to be lacking. Because they're secular words trying to describe spiritual things. But here where it says the, uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, one meaning is God breathed. One meaning is music. And here's the reason. It carries the idea that breath is blown through a flute to make a musical or a wonderful sound. Another meaning is fragrance. 
or smell. And the Bible is telling us, if we apply those things, the Bible is telling us things that stink in our own lives, the Word can make beautiful. Things that look destroyed in our own life, the Word of God can add music and beauty to it. Notice that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. I'll just take one of these and look at it real quick. Doctrine just means teaching. Reproof means to turn you back into the right direction. The word correction is the one I want you to see first of all, or primarily. And that is this word connection, or correction, excuse me. The word correction carries with it the idea that somebody's been knocked flat on their back by circumstances in life. This word lifts them up to stand straight again. That's the correction it's talking about. It's not talking about God or doesn't mean God's looking for a place to come down on you hard because you've messed up. He's always looking for a place to stand you up. Conveying the idea of a boat. And the word picture that, uh, that this sets out is, is pretty simple. It means that there are two kinds of boats. One is a little rowboat, small, leaking through the hull, not designed for any great length or great journey, not designed to be used for any long period of time, certainly not one that can weather the storms that come against it, but by the word of God. He can take the original condition that he finds us in and create a boat with sails and plenty of oars of great size that can travel any long distance and stand up to any storm of life. That's what thoroughly furnished means. It means completely equipped so that you can handle the storms of life and you don't have to worry about how long the journey is your boat will carry you there. That's what the Word of God does for our lives. That's what the Word of God does for us. That's our defense against this season that we're trapped by, the work of the devil that's going on on every hand. That's our defense. So folks, don't worry about what the world does around us. Don't worry about laws that are designed to take your kids away from you or reduce your control over them. Don't worry about any of that kind of stuff. I'm not going to worry about whether they outlaw my ability as a pastor to speak moral absolutes. I couldn't care less if they pass a law that says that I can't say that homosexuality is a sin. I'm going to say homosexuality is a sin because homosexuality is a sin. I'm going to say this transgender stuff is idiocy. Because it is idiocy. I don't care if somebody feels like a man one day, a woman another day, and a rhinoceros the third day. <laughs> You're either man or woman. And you are that way because you were born that way. So we don't live in a day where we should be afraid. One of the, uh, one of the meanings of the words that were used. I missed this one as I went by. But it's talking about where it speaks of uh, traitors and betrayal. It literally means when the laws protect those that are evil, not those that are good. And folks, we're fast approaching that. We're fast approaching that. So what are we going to do? We're going to use the word of God and sail through life. Doesn't mean we won't have trouble. Don't, doesn't mean we won't be challenged. But folks, if God could give Paul the words to preach on the day of Pentecost and explain what was going on that he had no clue about. Now you're telling me, tell, think about this. How much time do you think Paul spent in Joel's prophecy? I'm sorry, not Paul, Peter. How much information did Peter have about Joel and what Joel prophesied about the last days? Folks, he didn't know anything about it. He may have heard it preached once or twice. He may have heard something about it in the synagogue. But it's not like he's studying up on Joel's 
prophecies. But when the time came, God gave him the words to describe it. God gave him the words. Standing before magistrates and rulers, God gave Peter and Paul the things to say. He'll do the same for us. He'll do exactly the same for us. This note, in the last of the end times, perilous times will come. Fierce times will come. Circumstances will surround us that the, that the devil is designed to reduce our strength. But we're going to have to make a choice not to let that occur. We're going to have to make a choice to be bold whether we feel bold or not. We're going to have to make a choice to be strong whether we feel strong or not. We're going to have to make a choice to stand upon the word because it is the word of God. And God's promised that anybody that does that will never be ashamed. He'll see us through on, on every hand. Folks, the world literally is going to hell around us. And Paul's telling us by the Holy Ghost that it's going to look like hell while we're still here. But we've got something that the devil can't counter. The word of God that thoroughly furnishes us and equips us for whatever comes down the road. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth that we can build our lives on and we have built our lives on. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' precious name that your hand is upon this country. We know that evil men will wax worse and worse. We know that everything you prophesied through Paul and, and, and through every other one that you've ever used will truly and absolutely come to pass just as you said. But Father, we're not afraid. You haven't given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. We choose to be bold and say what we believe. We choose to hold fast to the moral absolutes that you've outlined in your word. No matter what the world does around us, we choose to stand strong and be the redeemed of God. Now, Father, we pray for the world. You said that if we would ask, you'd give us the heathen for an inheritance. So we ask you. We ask you for the precious fruit of the earth. We ask you for the moving of the Holy Ghost that produces that precious fruit of the earth. And Father, we know that no matter what happens, you'll never leave us alone. You'll never depart from us. You shall always be with us. So since you're with us, we're not afraid of what men will do. We're not afraid of what laws are passed. We're not afraid of what they tell us that we can or can't do as a church or that we, what we can or can't say as Christians and believers. We'll continue to speak the truth and trust you to get us through. Trust you to watch over your word to perform it. Thank you, Father, that the good news of what Jesus has done for us, the good news of redemption, the good news of the life of God within us has set us free from the law of sin and death. And it is the power of God unto every good thing, every perfect thing, every part of the salvation Jesus purchased for us. We love you, Father. We thank you that we are joined with you. We thank you that we're joint heirs with Christ. We thank you, Father, that you always hear and answer our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. Say this after me before, the, before we go. God is on my side. I will not fear what man will do unto me. Because God never fails. And neither does his word. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Thanks for being with us.